Hello, Tim Williams here. I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Thanks for choosing to listen to one of our archived episodes from our early days of launching the show. Although I love the overall content of these episodes, I will say the recording quality was not always the best as the show was still evolving and I was learning to record and edit pretty much on the fly. I believe the sound quality and editing has improved from season to season, so be sure to check out more great episodes in our more recent seasons. I hope you enjoy this episode and that it rekindles all those warm and fuzzy nostalgic feels. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we've discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what film we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes facts about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. In 1980, director Stanley Kubrick released a film that would haunt and terrify audiences for years to come. His own adaptation of a best-selling Stephen King novel has split audiences and critics, some calling it an overreaching, multi-leveled botch, while others hail it as a masterpiece of modern horror. No matter where you stand, there is no escaping the tension and madness that fills every frame of The Shining. Let's discuss. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to discuss The Shining, uh, released in 1980. Uh, and this week, uh, coming back for his second time on the 80s flick flashback podcast, uh, soon to be called the Stephen King aficionado, here's Laramie Wells. <laughs> yeah, here here I am again to talk about the, another Stephen King movie. I go from uh, probably the greatest adaptation to the <laughs> worst adaptation of a Stephen King novel. Well, I like to keep it, you know, let's go to the extreme to the other. Let's not even, you know, mess around with all that stuff in the middle, like Pet Cemetery and Cat's Eye and Carrie. And... Oh, Carrie's so good, though. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not in the 80s. That was like a 70s movie. Wasn't yeah. It? yeah, no, it was. Yeah. Yep. So, all right, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, The Shining. So uh, we'll just jump right in. When did you see The Shining for the first time? I'm sure you did not see it in the theater. That was released <laughs> in 1980. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I wasn't born yet. Um, <laughs> so VHS, cable? Uh, it was pro. you know, uh, it was probably either a VHS or a DVD copy. I'm not sure if I really had access to DVD yet, but it was probably in high school. Okay. Um you know, I, I think, you know, either Blockbuster or I was even one of those that would go to the library and, oh, yeah. you know, check out. And for some reason, I'm thinking there's a chance I probably checked it out of the library. Um, but no, I probably saw it for the first time 
in uh, high school, and I don't think it was. I, yeah, I think I actually saw the movie. It wasn't a TV edit mm-hmm. or anything. I think the first time I saw it, I saw the full out movie. Okay, so I know you've read the book. So did you read the book first and then see the movie, or did you see the movie first and then read the book? No, I saw the movie first. I didn't read the book. I actually remember I bought the book with a uh, Borders gift card that I got. Hey, all right. <laughs> that I got for gra- uh, when I graduated high school. Okay. Um, and I actually used it, and I uh, purchased the book, and then read the book that summer. Um, and uh, it, I mean, it's a it's a great book, and of course, you know, anybody who uh, watched the uh, or listened to the Stand by Me episode, and if you hadn't, you should. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, I I of course will probably in this episode make a lot of comparisons. Yeah, uh, with the book. Because well, there's a there's a lot of differences from what I understand too. Yes, so. which which again, as a I'm I'm more of a film buff than I am a, a reader, um, so I do understand that you can't fit everything from a, a novel into uh, you know a two hour movie, right? Um, but but and so there's some stuff that Kubrick uh, changed that I was okay with, and then there's stuff he changed that I'm <laughs> not okay with. Gotcha. But yeah, we can get into that a little later. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. So so how many times have you seen The Shining? You know what? Is this, like, I, is this one you've watched a bunch of times or just once or twice? No, because it's not really one that you're going to, you you know, you're not going <laughs> to pop it in every yeah, Friday night. You're not sitting there just going, I, I think I'll watch The Shining. <laughs> um, no, I've probably only watched it a handful of times. Uh, you know, of course, I watched it the initial time. I probably watched it a couple of times in college, watching it with some friends and then mm-hmm. after college i probably have only since watched it once or twice maybe just maybe i got it maybe when i got the dvd or mm-hmm. the, you know i said oh i'm gonna watch it now or and then um you know sat down i probably sat down and watched it with my wife at one point because uh, she doesn't like horror movies and i always try to make her watch one <laughs> so that's what marriage is yeah yeah <laughs> So how long had it been since you watched it before you watched it for the podcast? I would probably say um, somewhere around 10 years. Uh, okay, so it's, it's been a while. It's been a while since I've, I mean, really sat down and watched it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, as I said in the mini episode, and if you haven't listened to the mini episodes, you should, because they're, they're fun getting there. Uh, I have never seen, I had never seen The Shining until seeing this podcast. And so this was kind of a lot of different reasons why... I picked the movie uh, to watch at this time, but did not know, um, and Laramie and I were talking about this before we started, that I watched it this past Saturday, which was May 23rd, uh, not realizing that that was the 40th year anniversary of its release date. So um, as I was watching it and just kind of flipping through social media, which I probably shouldn't be doing when I'm watching a movie for a podcast, I need to pay attention. Uh, But I was noticing people, other uh, movie podcast or movie lover uh, accounts that I follow on Instagram were talking about it. So, uh, but I had not seen it. I I have memories, somewhat memories of it, because I remember my sister was. A, I have an older sister, and she was a big horror fan, even as a kid. And um, in going to some of the research, I found out that they did show it on TV in like 1983, which confirmed that I remember my mom and my sister sitting. I think they moved the TV into my parents' room. And they watched it when it came on, made the you know the edited for TV version, which I'm sure 
don't know how edited it would have been back then. I'm sure the language for sure, but it's really not the, the woman it's in the really tub not, is definitely. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And I was like, how did they edit this for TV? And they just cut that whole scene out, which would have made it real confusing if they did. Um, you know what? I actually think I've seen a, an edited version of it. I don't think they cut it out. I think she's just a big blur when she okay, gets out of the tub. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. So I remember my mom and my sister watching it, and I remember my sister like totally being freaked out. And I remember like days and weeks after that, my mom would harass my sister by walking around with her finger going, red rum, red rum, red rum. <laughs> and my sister was going, stop it, stop it, stop it. So um, so I, I knew red rum. I knew, uh, of course, the Here's Johnny, which, you'd, you know, just certain pop culture things that I've seen over the years, the, the, the two little girls in the hallway, the boy, you know, the son, Danny, uh, driving through. So. There's a lot of this movie I'd kind of seen already, but not knowing the context until actually watching the movie. Oh, that's so. the thing. This movie is embedded into pop culture. I mean, oh, yeah. you're oh, talking yeah. just, uh, what well, is past Super Bowl, the Mountain Dew commercial. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with Brian yeah, exactly. Cranston. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Tracy Ellis Ross. Yeah. Which that commercial still doesn't make any sense. Like, why did they choose that for that, for a Mountain Dew commercial? Still didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But, um, all right, so... Uh, so you've seen the book. I mean, you've seen the movie several times. You've read the book. It's new for me. So um, I'm going to kind of let you, uh, you know, uh, just talk more, I guess, on this one than I will. I do have some behind the scenes stuff. Let's talk a little bit about the development. Um, I'll kind of read a little bit and I'm going to let you kind of chime in wherever you feel you need to. Oh, you're, you're definitely going to need to rein me in or else you're in your you're in for your first <laughs> like three hour episode here. I, we'll break it up. This yeah, I'll, we'll I'll make it, it clear. I, I have a love-hate relationship with this movie, as I expressed to Tim um, when he asked me to do this one. Right. So, you know, and my, my notes are working. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just scribbling all over the place uh, with stuff right. that I'm seeing, stuff that I'm remembering is different with the movie gotcha. and all that. But, yeah, go ahead and we'll get started from here. Okay. Well, let, we'll talk about how it got started. So Stanley Kubrick is known for his forays into different genres, and horror was a genre that picked his interest early on in his career. In the early 70s, he was actually in consideration to direct The Exorcist, but he ended up not getting the job because he only wanted to direct the film if he could also produce it. Kubrick later told a friend that he wanted to make the world's scariest movie involving a series of episodes that would play upon the nightmare fears of the audience. So before making The Shining, Kubrick directed the film Larry, uh, Barry Lyndon in 1975, a highly visual period piece about an Irishman who attempts to make his way into the British aristocracy, 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 that's the right word again. Uh, despite its technical achievements, the film was not a box office success in the United States and was derided by critics for being too long and too slow. Kubrick, disappointed with Barry Lyndon's lack of success, realized he needed to make a film that would be commercially viable as well as artistically fulfilling. Stephen King was told that Kubrick had his staff bring him stacks of horror books as he planted himself in his office to read them all. Kubrick's secretary heard the sound of each book hitting the wall as the director flung it into the into reject pile after reading the first few pages. Finally, one day, the secretary noticed it had been a while since she had heard the thud of another writer's work biting the dust. She walked in to check on her boss and found Kubrick deeply engrossed in reading The Shining. Interestingly enough, Stephen King is skeptical of this account because he felt the novel actually begins rather slowly. It does. (laughs) 
So Stephen King actually got the idea for the book while his family was staying at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. They were the last guests before it shut down for the winter. He saw a group of nuns leaving the hotel, and it got him thinking that the place had suddenly became become godless. The King family stayed in room 217, the haunted room in the novel, but room 237 in the film, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later as well. A fire hose also resembled a snake, which doesn't appear in the movie, but does in the television miniseries, the which we'll talk about later. And the book, yeah. And King had already been playing around with a story idea about a boy with ESP, so he combined the two plot lines together. Um, according to David Hughes, one of Kubrick's biographers, Stephen King wrote an entire draft of the screenplay for The Shining. However, Kubrick didn't even deem it worth a glance, which sort of makes sense when you consider that director once described King's writing as weak. Instead, Kubrick worked with Diane Johnson on the screenplay because he, had a, he was a fan of her book, The Shadow Knows. The two ended up spending 11 weeks working on the script. Anything to add to that? No, or you're covering it pretty well. Embellish on. Okay. So filming, which was uh, we hear was not very good. Uh, actually, let's talk about casting before we get into that part. Um, da, 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 da. Well, Kubrick was pretty set on Jack Nicholson from the beginning. Yeah. That was somebody exactly. King did not want. Um, King actually right. wanted John Boyd. Yeah. Uh, yep. But Kubrick was pretty set on um on on Nicholson, Nicholson. Uh, and then um I you know I, you may have looked this up I don't know a lot of this background but I do know mm-hmm. that you know he went with Shelley Duvall because he went the complete opposite direction of what Wendy yep. was supposed to look like mm-hmm. yep uh, so going back to to uh Nicholson so like I said Nicholson was Kubrick's first choice he had also considered Robert De Niro and Robin Williams, but decided against them. Kubrick did not think De Niro would suit the role after watching his performance in Taxi Driver. He thought De Niro was not psychotic enough for the role. Then he didn't want Williams because watching his performance on Mork and Mindy, he thought he was too psychotic for the role, which I think is pretty, pretty fascinating. I can't really see Robin Williams, especially then, he was still very much a comedic actor. Um, he really didn't get into a serious work until what late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, I but guess. then even going to the dark, uh, which he did in the early two thousands with one hour photo, yeah, yeah. which was horrible, yeah. and then Final Cut was another one. Um, yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. his best work as kind of the protagonist villain was Insomnia. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That's a good, yeah. That, that's when I, I forget that he's in. Uh, it's, it's kind of a kind of a lost gem. People don't talk much about insomnia in one of Christopher Nolan's. That's no, kind of the lesser Nolan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the granted, it's not as good as some of the other ones. We're on a totally different yeah. podcast. <laughs> but we'll get to Nolan in a couple of decades. All right. So, uh, so that so Nicholson was Kubrick's choice. So he also envisioned Shelley Duvall. Um, it was like his first choice as his more timid, dependent version of Wendy Torrance from the very beginning. However, Jack Nicholson, after reading the novel, actually wanted Jessica Lange for the role of Wendy and even recommended her to Kubrick as he felt she fit Stephen King's version of the character. After explaining the changes he had made, Kubrick convinced him that Duvall was the correct choice as she best suited the emotional, fragile Wendy he had in mind. Many years later, Nicholson told Empire Magazine he thought Duvall was fantastic 
and called her work in the film the toughest job that any actor yeah, I've ever I'm, seen. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything bad against Shelley Duvall's performance. Just no, to, to no. back up on that, so for people who don't know, Stephen King wrote Wendy uh, as pretty much a trophy wife. Um, you know, she right. was he, she was blonde. Um, she was supposed to have the classic Hollywood actress, you know, looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was supposed to actually, even her personality, she was supposed to be a lot stronger uh, in personality. Okay. And, um, you know, kind of it in the book, it works a little bit better because she's, she's not really afraid of, um, you know, I'm going to have to do it. Uh, she's not really afraid of John, which is the name mm-hmm. in the book. It's John Torrance oh, okay. in the book, uh, <laughs> not Jack Torrance. Um, but, but again, that goes into all the a lot of the changes that uh, Kubrick decides to make. Right. But yeah, but no, Shelley Duvall for for what for what Stanley Kubrick wrote, Shelley Duvall performed it beautifully. Right. Right. I agree. I mean. I think it, it, it becomes what you would kind of consider over the top in, in, in moments, but at the same time, <clears throat> kind of understanding what, or if you can understand what's going on, which sometimes you can't really, I mean, you can't think there's really no other way to play it. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, I mean, her franticness and, you know, uh, I would say overall paranoia there towards the end, is uh, I think she I think she projected that about as good as anybody else could have um, for that role. So in search to find the right actor to play Danny, the son, Kubrick sent a husband and wife team to Chicago, Denver, and Cincinnati to create an interview pool of five thousand boys over a six month period. These cities were chosen since Kubrick was looking for a boy with an accent which fell between Jack Nicholson's and Shelley Duvall's differing speech patterns. They found that in Danny Lloyd. The idea of Danny Lloyd to move his finger when he was talking as Tony was his own. He did it spontaneously during his first audition. Did not know that. Oh, did I? Okay. <laughs> hey, I got one. I got one in. So let's see. So if we go talk about filming. So, you know, talking about Shelley Duvall's performance, uh, it's very well documented that Shelley Duvall was not treated very well <laughs> on the set. Of uh, of the movie. Well, there there are um, conflicting, uh, com- com- yeah, accounts. conflicting accounts about that. Okay, but but I'm not saying she wasn't. I mean, if you see right. the, uh, and it's actually a part of the DVD. Um, Stanley Kubrick's daughter Vivian made a, right. a making right. of, and there's actually a clip in there of Kubrick pretty much berating uh, Shelley. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's even a moment where he just kind of laughs, laughs off uh, her not feeling well and tells the rest of the crew not to give her any pity. And so right. I'm not yep. saying it wasn't there. I'm just saying, you know, very well could have been exaggerated throughout the years. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure. And and, and I've, I've heard other accounts that Shelley Duvall, even during the press for the movie, never talked bad about the experience and never said anything, you know, derogatory about the experience i think she um she said it was the hardest shoot she's ever done um but i think most people uh had the same thing like he was known for doing multiple multiple shots of the same scene which uh wore her out and then also um uh scatman crothers um you didn't get his name right 
I'm not looking at my notes. Okay, good. Uh, Scanlon Crothers had a, was, had a hard time uh, in some of his scenes as well. And I think at one point he broke down and said, just mm-hmm. tell me what you want, Mr. Kubrick. Um, so uh, not an easy set. But at the same so you have those two accounts, but then Jack Nicholson's account where they were buddies and hung out. And then even Danny said that he had no bad memories of Kubrick. Like he, you know, uh, spent time with him and played with him in between shots and uh, was always really nice to him. But also Danny um, did not know he was making a horror movie. He actually thought he was making a drama. So he was not exposed to any of the uh, more scary scenes, the horror scenes. And he actually didn't see the full movie until uh, he was like 17, they said. Well, I, I do know that Jack Nicholson, because uh, this is also uh, mentioned in the making the Shining documentary that Vivian made. Mm-hmm. The thing that Kubrick did that Jack Nicholson couldn't stand was the constant rewrites. Um, yeah, Nicholson oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much refused to read a script until he until they were <laughs> ready to shoot because he didn't want right. to waste his time learning lines that were going to ultimately be changed. Um, you right, going back right. to what you said about the multiple takes, I do believe, and I didn't do research on this, uh, you may have it, that the the, the famous um, acts to the bathroom door actually held, mm-hmm. if not still holds, the Guinness Book of World Record um, for the number of takes that it took. It's not that scene. It's the scene of them oh, going okay. up the staircase and her swinging the, okay. the baseball bat. Which there's conflicting reports on that because, yeah, it's in the Guinness Book of World Records for like 170 mm-hmm. takes, I think. But there's been some staff or, you know, um, uh, not staff, crew, but yeah. um, crew members that later that later said it was not that many. It, it was probably like 60, which yeah. is still a lot, but it wasn't over 100. So, um, but yeah, but I think the, the, uh, the axe going through the door scene, they said, still took six well, days yeah, to and film. And part of that was... Uh... Jack Nicholson actually used to be a volunteer firefighter. And so when the props department created the door, they didn't know that. And they created these, you know, really easy to break (laughs) doors. And they didn't realize Jack knew how to swing an ax. And so he went through Mm -hmm. the the door like it was nothing, um, which didn't work for the shot. And so they they eventually Mm -hmm. just went, okay, we're just going to use a real door. Um, And yeah, (laughs) so I know that was part of, of, why it took so many takes was because and then i you know i've heard that uh kubrick was so because he was such a perfectionist um which is good Mm -hmm. and bad um that ultimately he's the one actually controlling the camera for that scene uh oh really okay you know because it's a famous scene where the camera's actually following Mm -hmm. the axe uh back and forth um as he hammers it through so yeah now kubrick Again, one of the reasons I'm not a uh, I have the love hate relationship is, is is Stanley Kubrick. So, <laughs> so it's also well known that King Stephen King was not a fan no. of <laughs> Kubrick's adaptation. <laughs> um, yeah. So in 1983, King told Playboy magazine, "I'd admired Kubrick for a long time and had great expectations for the project, but I was deeply disappointed in the end result." Parts of the film are chilling, charged with a relentlessly claustrophobic terror, but others fell flat. One thing King didn't like was the casting of Jack Nicholson, as we talked about before. Um, Jack Nicholson, though a fine actor, was all wrong for the part, King said. His last big role had been in Wind Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Which he won an Oscar for. 
Yeah. Exactly. And between that and the manic grin, the audience automatically identified him as a loony from the first scene. But the book is about Jack, Jack Torrance's gradual descent into madness through the malign influence of the Overlook. If the guy is nuts to begin with, then the entire tragedy of his downfall is wasted. Unquote. Yeah, that, that's, that's a tangent I can go off on. It's just um, that alone. <laughs> because the, the book is so much about uh, John, again, and I'll say I'll say Jack mm-hmm. not to confuse people. Um, gotcha. the, the book is about Jack having problems with alcohol. Uh, I know that it, it is in the movie, um, but I just don't think it's mm-hmm. clear enough that. Yeah. And that was another problem that Nicholson had with it, because him being a recovering alcoholic, he wanted those he wanted that to be more of the story in the movie, yeah. I think. too. And and Cooper kind of a, kind of almost. He makes it a little subtle, but I think it's a little too subtle. Um, and, and, you know, the, the whole bar scenes with Grady. Um, mm-hmm. uh, no, not Grady. That's Lloyd. Uh, with Lloyd, the bartender, you know, uh, right. providing him the drinks, which, um, you know, again, you kind of get into the, the whole, you know, mindset and whatnot. Uh, Kubrick does make it feel like, there is something wrong with Jack from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they even have the scene very early on where the doctor comes and checks on Danny and Wendy uh, tells the doc um, about mm-hmm. uh, Jack breaking Danny's arm. Well, in the book, Danny's the one that confesses to that because okay. uh, King starts off the book and we'll also talk talk about the ending later too how different they are um he starts off the book with jack being just more of just a regular dad yet that he did have a troubled past but right now he's good um i know there's even a i don't know the exact numbers but there's a discrepancy between the book and the movie about how long jack has been sober um but okay. Jack's the one that confesses to it to the doctor. He says, yeah, you know, we had had a little incident, you know, and I, I broke his arm. So it, it goes ahead and starts mm-hmm. off in the book showing, you know, Jack cares. Um, we right. never really get that in the movie. Um, you know, there's not an awful lot of father-son bondness. Uh, you know, there's there's even... Yeah, yeah. not yeah, early on. Uh, there's right. even the, the scene um, where... Danny goes into their bedroom and he's sitting on the bed with Jack and uh, he says to Jack, you know, you would never hurt me and mommy, would you? And Jack just stares at him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're like, that shouldn't be a question you have to pause right. to answer. Right. And then he's like, right. what do you mean? Right. I mean, it's like, no, the answer is no. And uh, again, Kubrick just goes ahead and sets out there's something unusual with Jack. So, mm-hmm. but again, I I could keep going on that, but we'll, we'll yeah, <laughs> we'll stop there. All right, well, let's talk a little bit. We're kind of still talking about somewhat. Well, we're kind of all over the place. But that's fine. Look, the movie is somewhat all over the place, so it kind of kind of fits. So let's talk about Steadicam because Steadicam was very new when this. Uh, yes, this I do know this. Um, um, I'm gonna you know toot my own little horn here. I actually used to. I used to teach a film <laughs> studies class. Uh, uh, okay. For people who don't know, I'm a high school teacher. Uh, I used to teach a film studies class. This was actually 
the fourth movie to ever use a Steadicam. Um, the right. the camera guy is actually the guy who invented the Steadicam. Uh, Garrett Garrett yes. Brown. Yes. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, however, this movie pushed the limits of his Steadicam because uh, with the right. famous, and I'll go ahead and mention, you know, this is one of my favorite parts of the movie, you know, the riding through the halls uh, behind Danny yes. on, his, on his big wheel. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the Steadicam wasn't made to go that low. And so Garrett Brown had to figure out a way to get the Steadicam down there and you know, of course, now they have rig rigging for this, but when they did it for The Shining, it was Garrett Brown with his Steadicam sitting in a wheelchair, and he just had guys pushing mm-hmm. him. Right. But yeah, no. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think like especially now because Steadicam is used so predominantly um, in movies today that you almost don't even realize they're being used, but to see it in something from 1980 in that manner is what it's one of the things that makes the movie iconic, whether you like the movie or not, like you said, you can't, you can't deny how awesome those Mm -hmm. scenes are uh, of him riding through the hallways. And it's all, you know, and for Kubrick's own craziness, it is somewhat mesmerizing and it almost kind of lure. It really lures you in to those scenes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's the, it's the decor, it's the framing, and I think reading uh, to understand a little bit about Kubrick, he got started as a photographer. Like I think he was a, like 17. He was taking some pictures. Somebody noticed it and hired him for a magazine. And he was very famous as a photographer because he was able to almost tell a story in a single shot. And they said that that translated very well when he started mm-hmm. doing film because of the way he frames his shots. And uh, I could really see that uh, in this well, movie and he, for sure. Uh... You know, he used a wide angle lens, uh, an 18 millimeter wide yeah. angle lens, uh, which helped with rooms like in the uh, the Colorado room, um, which is the main room um, where Jack's sitting with his typewriter. It makes it look okay. so big. Um, yeah, it's the yeah. same oh, thing yeah. with these shots of Danny riding the bike is that it helps with the scope, just realizing. And the thing is, this is a set. Like they they did not film yeah, exactly. inside of an actual hotel. This is a set, and so right. um, the, you know there's the two main um, times that Danny is riding through. The one is pretty much an establishing shot to show him go all the way around the uh, the Colorado room, and then the second one, mm-hmm. if you know you, you're not realizing what you're seeing, he's actually upstairs, and uh, he's riding around. Um, you actually see a corner of the the um uh the walkway that looks over the Colorado room and he's riding upstairs mm-hmm. but just it's just showing the scope and how isolated they are and and it also yeah. helps pretty much do what I'm not going to say Kubrick extremely succeeded at this but to create the overlook as its own character um yeah, you know, yeah. I think King yeah. does a better job with that. Uh, I will say, um, jumping forward, you know, uh, forty years, uh, Mike Flanagan does a better job with it in the sequel, Doctor Sleep. Um, but we won't okay. get into that. But I, I, I will say, and if you've seen <laughs> The Haunting at Hill House, which Mike Flanagan also directed on Netflix, he makes that house more of a character. I don't think Kubrick gotcha. uh, really fully made the Overlook a character. 
Um, no, which, no. you know, I don't know how much you want to get into that now, but that's a big difference between the, the novel and the movie is the overlook itself. Right. Well, yeah, they, well, I was, some of the things I was reading about the movie and they were talking, not, not talking about that specifically, but kind of in that same vein is, I don't know if it was Roger Ebert. It was some critic that made the comment that there's no, there's no character in the movie that is supposed to be the audience's mm-hmm. perspective. And they said, you would, you kind of want it to be Dick, which is uh, Scatman Crothers' character, but he's not in it enough and he's not there to see Jack, Wendy, and Danny, you know, actually in the hotel. So there, there's the theory that Kubrick was actually telling a ghost story from the perspective of the ghosts. Yeah, I, I, I disagree with that. Like, Kubrick did everything but tell a ghost story. Kubrick told a psychological thriller. Kubrick told a journey into a man's madness. Uh, And he did that really well. Um, There's so much, and this is where I'm going to go off. You have triggered triggered this. There is so much um, about the movie in which any of the supernatural stuff can be explained. Mm Um, you know, that it's, it's figment of Jack's imagination. Um, you know, even when, when, uh, Danny goes into room 237 and is apparently Mm -hmm. attacked and he comes back down and shows Wendy the bruises, you know, Wendy looks at Jack and says, you did this, you did this to, and you could almost go, yeah, that could be, that's, that's, that's that's possible. The only time. In the movie, the only time in the movie in which you going, know that going. there is a ghost is when Grady mm-hmm. lets Jack out of the pantry. Out yeah. of the freezer. Yeah, the freezer, yeah. Uh, Free, I, freezer, I, right? I thought pantry. It was pantry, but it doesn't matter. It, he lo- yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. It's a locked, it's a locked door. door that you clearly see, that you clearly see Wendy yeah. locked when she leaves, and there's no other no. way for him to get out because Danny didn't let him out. Yes. You know that. And even if he's acting as Tony, which is his imaginary friend, or some would say is his future uh, self, which I'm not going to, I'm not going to trigger you on that one either. But <laughs> that's something where Stephen King shot himself in the foot when he remade the movie in 97. Oh, yeah. But, but no, so, yeah. So in, again, and in the book, it actually is the ghost. It's Grady. Um, mm-hmm. King explains it. King has Grady open the door. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, in the movie, we just, we hear a voice and, and then all of a sudden you hear the click or, you know, whatever sound and the right. door is open. Right. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I, now, now don't get me wrong. I don't want people saying, you know, well, wait a minute, but this, the whole shining thing. No, I'm not saying there's not a supernatural aspect to the movie. Uh, clearly Danny, you know, has some sort of, uh, ESP. Um, you know, because right. he communicates right. with, uh, with Dick and, um, mm-hmm. but, but in terms of the actual events that happen in the movie, it's almost, it's completely, it, 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 there's no reason why Danny should have those abilities. Uh, whereas right. in the novel, um, in the novel, it's actually a key point in the novel. The it's, it's a haunted hotel in the novel there are ghosts Mm -hmm. um 
There are things that move. There are things that attack them. Um, and I'll try not to get it too far off. I mean, there's the, the there's the topiaries <laughs> um, that that move uh, when they're not looking. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's the 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 um, the pipe, the, the hose that attacks Danny. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of things right. that move. And the idea behind the overlook in the book is that when Danny enters the overlook, the ghost sense that shining and they want okay. to feed off of it. Um, and gotcha. that's where, gotcha. which sounds, yeah, which sounds more like what Stephen King, that's, that's his yes. kind of writing style. You know what I'm saying? That sounds more like yes. what and he So they are trying to attack Danny. Um, and it's, it's not until they realize, okay, we can't get to him because his shine is so powerful that they then turn their attention on Jack and figure, let's get Jack to give us Danny. Um and that's okay. where the, the novel kind of goes. And Kubrick just completely takes that out. Um, you know, again, <laughs> I'll, I'll throw this in just as a little uh, trivia fact for people who don't know this. I'm sure you found it in your research. But there's the scene where Dick is on his way to the hotel. And he comes across a car mm-hmm. wreck. And, and the car wreck, right, right. Uh, you know, they make sure you see the car wreck. Uh which mm-hmm. just seems completely pointless. Why is you know why why do we have to have this car wreck? Yeah, but the <laughs> it's a um, log truck or a tractor trailer of some sort has crushed yeah. a red yeah. Volkswagen Beetle. Now, if people who've seen right. the movie, they know the famous you know helicopter shot uh, at the beginning that shows that mm-hmm. the Torrances arrive in a yellow Volkswagen Beetle. The emphasis there right. is that in the book, it's a red Beetle. In the movie, it's a yellow beetle. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people believe, and I do believe this one, this, you know, with all the conspiracy theories about The Shining, <laughs> I do believe that that scene was there as Kubrick saying, no, King, I am crushing your story, and this is my own story. I mean, the movie is, mm-hmm. the right there on the cover of the movie, it says, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Right. So he's Yeah, other than King the, the based credit. on a novel by, you know, that's the only... Only right, thing that Stephen right. King really gets, you know, this is this is Stanley Kubrick just going, "Ooh, that's an awesome idea," and then making his own movie, um, right? Which he obviously changed oh, a lot changed because so he was constantly writing, re- <laughs> which he was constantly rewriting the script. So, it, it, you know. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh man! All right. Well, so I'll go ahead and say up front, I don't have any favorite scenes <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> so if you have a favorite scene or some scenes you want to talk about, I'm gonna let you just go for it. And I'll yeah, I can't really I say can. I have a favorite scene. Um, <clears throat> you know, probably Danny riding the bike. Uh, is, is yeah. I guess they're more. 
you yeah. have the iconic scenes, like I said, which, they, I mean, any scene I'm going to talk about is going to be a scene that everybody's seen a, me, a, a million times. There was nothing that I was necessarily like, oh, I've never, you know, nothing that kind of grabbed me like, oh, I wonder why nobody talks about that scene. No, but, I mean, that that's pretty much the same. Uh, like, I don't really have a favorite scene. Um, you know, it, it's a... It's a beautiful movie, as you you stated earlier. You know, Kubrick did know how to shoot a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's great about a rewatch, and some people say, you know, you know, this isn't really a movie that you would sit down and just watch over again. But the great thing about a rewatch with The Shining Mm -hmm. is to try to look for the reasons why you felt uncomfortable watching the movie. Um, Hmm. You know, because there are there are little things that I'm sure Kubrick did on purpose, um, knowing how much of a perfectionist he was. There is a famous uh, scene, which, you know, you could look this up online in which Wendy and Jack are talking while Jack's sitting at his desk uh, in the middle of the room. And there is a table and chair behind him. And then it cuts to mm-hmm. Wendy or whatever, and it cuts back to Jack and the table and chair aren't there. Um, and so, mm, okay. you know, again, kind of going to that, you know, he plays with the haunted house aspect. Um, There Mm -hmm. is, if you pay attention, the layout of the overlook makes no sense. Um, Yeah. I read, I read about that. They do those shots like Danny riding around when they arrive and uh, um, uh, the name slipped my mind. Ullman, the, uh, the manager is walking them around. Yeah. It's to give you an idea of the layout. And then they walk into Ullman's office and there's a window. And if you go back and watch, you realize they've walked all the way around his office. Which means his office Mm -hmm. is in the middle of the hotel. And so there's no (laughs) way there should be a window. Um, There's also, you know, the infamous room 237. When you see Danny uh, Mm -hmm. or even Jack... Uh, going down the hall, you see all the doors. Well, if you think about how far apart the doors are, and then when they enter room 237, it's like, that room's a heck of a lot bigger than the outside hallway would lead you to believe. Um, And so again, there's just, there's there's Mm -hmm. all of this, you know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, I know another famous one, which I actually pointed out to my wife when, uh, I was rewatching this um, is the, what seems like a very simple shot of Wendy and Danny sitting down watching television. You, again, you mm-hmm. rewatch it and you realize that television sitting in the middle of a room. It's not sitting next to a wall mm-hmm. and you can see underneath mm-hmm. the TV and there's no cord. Like how is that TV being mm. powered? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because they didn't make batteries strong enough to power yeah. a TV that and, size uh, back then. You know, and again, if someone wants to argue, well, you know, they put the the outlets on the floor and some of these big play. I get that, but you can see under it's on legs. You can see underneath the TV, and there is yeah. no cord. Um, and so it's mm-hmm. it's little things like that, um, that just you know I do appreciate what what. Uh, Kubrick was doing there. I mean, even the the infamous uh, pattern on the hallway floor. Uh, if you right, if you look, right. you know, and, there, and there's a lot of interpretations, and I'm not going to get into any of the conspiracy theories and all that. But 
what I, I look at it as is, you know, it's this really kind of unsettling pattern. You know, you don't quite know which way it's going. Um, and then when he, and it's this hexagon shape kind of interlapped inside mm-hmm. of itself mm-hmm. and folded over on, on it, onto itself. Well, then when they enter room 237, it's actually the same pattern, but it's more rounded. Um, and, you know, one could mm, argue okay. is that it's because in room 237, the supernatural presence is stronger. You know, it's not as, you know, jagged mm. and yeah, as the hallway Boxed is. In. Yeah, um, okay. You know, so that's a, a, a interesting little interpretation, but it's still that same, you know, overlapping pattern, but it's got an oval shape to it uh, or rounded shape to it. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so things like that, I just think is, you know, a great, um, uh, you know, a, a wonderful thing that Kubrick did to make it more of a visual movie, which of course a movie is versus a book. Um, but yeah, just going back right. and just realizing just, you know, okay, this isn't natural or this doesn't feel right. And then going mm-hmm. back and watching the movie and, and going, well, why, uh, you know, another great thing is you got to think this came out in 1980, which was right as horror movies were really right. getting a uh, a resurgence. You know, we had we had started to get away mm-hmm. from the, you know, just the eerie ghost stories, um, you know, of like Vincent Price and and all those and the monster movies. Um, <clears throat> and we started, you know, we, we were getting Halloween, which was was just a few years before this. Mm-hmm. You know, we're. Yeah, I think I yeah I think I read yeah. Friday thirteenth and then Friday thirteenth like is around this time. Part. I mean, Alien is around this time. Uh, you know, so we're getting right, more of right. the, the slasher, uh, jump scare um, type movies. Well, mm-hmm. Kubrick kind of just went ahead and turned that entirely on its nose, and so instead of the jump mm-hmm. scare, uh, Kubrick, you know, because in a in a slasher movie like Friday the 13th or Halloween, you get, you know, someone walking down the hall and then Jason, Mike Myers, whoever jumps out and you get your scare. In The mm-hmm. Shining, they see it before we do. Um, you know, right. uh, probably the, I would say there, there's, there's thought- one. Obviously, when Danny turns the corner and the, the twins are standing there, that's yeah. probably the one big jump scare. But, but, yeah. I'll say that, and even when uh, when Jack kills Dick behind the come out with the column with the axe. I well, mean, you kind of know. See, it's coming, I think that but, was but another still... genius of Kubrick to to. Well, I say genius, and I also say it was another one of his sticking it to Stephen King, um, because in the novel, Dick lives in the novel because <laughs> Dick uh, lives Dick in the is right. He lives beaten in... by right. Jack, uh, which I'll go ahead and get into this. Jack okay. doesn't wield an axe in the in the novel. Uh, Jack wields a uh, croquet okay. mallet or a roke mallet, whatever the other game is. But, um, you know, okay. <laughs> think of like Harley Quinn, but smaller. Uh, you know, he, he, he uses <laughs> gotcha. that and he beats Dick with it. Um, but Dick does survive. And Dick is the hero of the, of the book and ultimately uh, gets Wendy and Danny mm-hmm. to safety. Um, but so I think that Kubrick in the movie by doing that moment where, you know, Jack comes out of nowhere um, and kills uh, Dick was to pretty much say, Hey, those of you who read the book, 
realize that I'm now changing <laughs> the ending. Um, you know, right, uh, right. Which again, jumping forward, uh, for people who have or have not read or seen uh, Doctor Sleep, you got to think that when Mike Flanagan went to make the movie, he had a dilemma because he's making a sequel mm-hmm. of a book and a movie that don't agree with each other. And Stephen King wrote Dr. Sleep as a sequel to his novel, but Mike Flanagan has got to make a movie that has to be aware that there's a a movie (laughs) that exists of the original. So, you know, that gets into all of that and I can keep going on and all that, but just again, talking about the, the visual nature of it. The other thing that Kubrick did, um, uh, to kind of make that uneasiness feel and to kind of turn horror movies uh, on their side was the ghost were people. Um, you know, you didn't have mm-hmm. that famous being able to see through the ghost or there being some sort of aura around the ghost yeah. uh, to where you know right. that that's right. a ghost. Right. Um, not saying we, d- we don't know that these are ghosts, but it, <clears throat> it makes you really question, like, is what I'm seeing real? Um, and so having, right, right. Which to that, which, yeah, I was say, which to that point, I guess the, the one scene that does stand out to me that I, that, uh, I can't say I enjoyed it, but I was the most, I think, okay, I just saw the scene of, uh, Jack and yes. was a gray in the bathroom after he spills the drink and that whole conversation, like that was really meant, like I was really drawn in and that, in that scene, like that really was a really cool scene. And I think I was reading that, that he broke the 180 rule in filmmaking where you use the camera to make sure you know who's standing on which side of the room. And that's something I didn't realize. Like, not, that's where I would want to watch it again to watch that scene again because I didn't realize it when I was watching it the first time. But then realizing that he was shooting that in a way that you can't tell when, like, which direction yeah. each person is standing and talking. Well, that's just like the scene uh, at the bar so, where um, he's supposedly talking with Lloyd. You know, you can, he shot a lot of that. Right, right. Uh, where you're looking straight at Jack and it's almost, you think, yeah, Jack yeah. potentially is just talking to himself in the mirror. Um, so yeah, that's again, a lot of that exactly. where yeah. uh, Kubrick shot it in a way where you're like, something doesn't feel right. But you do, like I said, it does need a rewatch to go back yeah, so you yeah. can look for that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say, like, look, once again, I, I would not call this a scary movie yeah. because I can't say I was necessarily scared, but it does permeate with tension and I can't even say necessarily chaos. It gets chaotic towards the end, but there's just there. it's just that building of tension Throughout yeah. the movie, which I re- I respect that you can you can pull that kind of emotion out of an audience without the jump scares, without the slap. You know, once again, Dick Grayson <laughs> is really the only person Dick that Holleran. we see get killed in the movie. Robin, let's say Dick Grayson, Dick Holleran. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, that's okay. And in, in the mini episode, yeah, I called uh, Shelley Duvall Shelley Long, so uh, you know, just it, it happens. Um, but yeah, but so. You know, I, so I respect it in that aspect. Um, once again, I it's not my favorite movie. It's not even my favorite genre. Um, but there are things about it that I do like. Say, I'm like I'm, I can't say love hate relationship, but there are things that I respect and I can glean from yeah. it as good filmmaking, uh, good acting, 
um, from all that were again. Really, I thought Danny, the child, uh, the you know the son, to play though to play that role um, was very talented. It was shocking yeah. he didn't really do much acting. After Which that. you know, sadly, that's um, the case for a lot of kids from kind of that era. Uh, you know, it's like you know, famous yeah. from Willy Wonka that the kid that played Charlie, you know, never really did anything else. But uh, mm-hmm. but no, no, I agree. Uh, that that's where I do have the love hate relationship with it because, you know, as I appreciate film uh, more as I grew up, I realized okay, Kubrick had some really good ideas here, and I understand why he did things the way he did it. Um, but but no, at the mm-hmm. same time, you know, to to say this is the scariest movie of all time, which is what Kubrick uh, was going for, is not true. I mean, that's one of the things it. King pretty much said was that you know, Kubrick did not understand the genre. Um, I think Kubrick right, even right, uh, made right. a comment about how it's a, a, a beautiful Cadillac with no motor. Um, I think was, yeah, was the mm-hmm. quote that Stephen yeah, King yeah, said, read that. Um, you know, uh, and albeit, you know, I, you know, and the thing is, and I know I'm going, you know, every which way as I'm talking, but this, this is honestly how my, my brain works <laughs> as I was watching this. Cause I have, this back and forth with it you know uh, it was actually because of king's just utter you know disdain for this movie that king's never talked badly about any other adaptation um if he doesn't like it he just doesn't mm-hmm. say anything um because this became right. such a big big ordeal i mean you know he finally got to remake it in 97 uh after the success of the stand the stand mm-hmm. did, yeah. The stand, the TV miniseries right. did so well that uh, they allowed him to to pretty much, you know, do the Shining. Uh, he did the Shining, which was like a three or four mm-hmm. night uh, miniseries. Yeah, yeah. And well, even it though it is more true to the book, uh, he does not convey the uneasy, scary feeling that Kubrick is able to. Um, you know, and you can argue, well, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. TV movie. Um, you know, he had a TV budget, which again, goes back into Kubrick and some of his decisions. I mean, the topiaries, um, uh, you know, you're talking 1979, 78, when they were starting to film this, um, uh, Kubrick took that out because he was like, there, there's not technology to make giant, you know, topiary mm-hmm. animals move, uh, and not look cheesy. And right. so he put in the infamous hedge maze, uh, which I just think is maze. great. Uh, right. I, I have no problem with the hedge maze. I mm-hmm. mean, obviously, it leads to a completely different ending from the book. Um, you know, um, but, you know, I'm fine with that. So, uh, you know, I agree with all of that. And again, I will keep rambling uh, all day long about this movie. <laughs> Well, well, yeah. Let's 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 uh, let's kind of rein it in. We're getting getting close to our our time. Yeah, uh, we can always do a part two if we need to, <laughs> if we need to. But um, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. So so let so let's talk about um, kind of close it out. So, did you know that there? I'm sure you did. But I'm gonna ask anyway. Did you know that there was an ending that Kubrick? To yes, out, even uh, after it was already which doesn't years. exist because Kubrick okay. was so yes, 
Kubrick, Kubrick, which was you, you got yeah. into earlier with uh, The Exorcist. You know, Kubrick had to have final say. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, with The Shining, yeah. you know, you'll never in any DVD, Blu-ray, anything find deleted scenes because Kubrick destroyed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're apparently I've never seen right. them, but there are apparently still images that a crew person shared. Uh, but okay. yeah, there there is a, a, yes. a scene that apparently takes place in a, ho- a hospital room after they uh, have left the uh, Overlook. Right. Um, but but again, again, not in the book uh, because yes. because in the okay, yeah, yeah, because the yeah the book so the, the hotel we'll, burns we can down. Quickly right? go over that. So in the the book, yeah, go for um, it. You know, Dick shows up. Uh, he gets beaten. Jack starts to go after Wendy and Danny. Wendy, again, we talked about this earlier. Wendy was a different character. Wendy actually fights off Jack. And uh, it's okay. it's pretty much implied that Wendy kills Jack. Um, however, the Overlook okay. takes over Jack, pretty much fully possessing him. Um, and so he continues, uh, continues his assault. Um and then mm-hmm. as he is going after Danny, uh, okay, let me, let me back up again. I'm getting, I'm, I'm trying to do this quick so we can, we can, <laughs> we can fit this into your, you know, the one hour <laughs> mark here, but um, it was, it's established more in the book than it is in the movie that they have to maintain the boiler. Um, and Jack has to period. And they show right, Wendy right. actually doing it in the movie. Uh, has to go down and release the pressure mm-hmm. from the boiler. Uh, well, at the end of the book, uh, as Jack is, um, you know, uh, trying to attack Danny and um, and Wendy, uh, there is a moment actually where uh, Jack gets control again and he tells Danny to run. Um, I don't remember if that happens before or after the attack with Wendy. But what ends up happening is, and I, I honestly don't remember if it was Wendy or Danny who does this, they remind the ghosts the, that are, they've been so mm-hmm. wrapped up in trying to get to Danny and kill Wendy and Danny. And so Wendy or Danny reminds Jack and the ghosts, you forgot to release the pressure on the boiler. And so all of a sudden Mm -hmm. the ghost realized, oh, we got to run down to the boiler. They run to the boiler that allows Dick to come and get Wendy and uh, Danny and they get out. And as Jack goes down into the basement to relieve, it's too late and the boiler explodes and the, the overlook um, burns. So, so that is how uh, the, you know, he's not, he doesn't get frozen in the maze because i mean there was no maze but which you know is again another thing you're talking the novel ends in fire and the movie ends in ice yeah (laughs) so snow yeah 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 and it's funny because like when when that scene showed up of him you know frozen ice i've seen Mm -hmm. that meme like every winter (laughs) when it's cold outside and never knew what that was from So, so i was like oh that's what that that's what that's from all right so Let's uh, so let's talk a little bit about how the movie actually ends, and then I'll read a little bit about the post, the original ending that he took out. So, because I want to, I want to get your input on this. So, the movie ends with the infamous picture showing Jack 
1941 with the people in the ballroom. So the, I guess the few theories are, did it mean that Jack was there in 1941 and that he came back or, you know, reincarnated. And then when the outlook of the overlook saw him as he was older, which once again changes where in the movie, they're really more trying to get Jack than Danny. Or is it that once he fully surrendered to the ghosts or the spirit of the out, the over, I'll keep up with outlook, the overlook that once he died, he then was transported into the picture um, and now a part of yeah, the my, house my belief and one is of the, the ghosts of the house. Um, I believe that once he once he died uh, and the overlook, you know, pretty much took him over, that he just became a part of uh, the overlook. And so that means he existed, he exists in gotcha. all, all of time for the overlook, you know, because so, you can, you can make that right. argument going back right. to the fact that the, that uh, uh, Grady is the, the waiter or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. he's supposed to, and, you know, he was the previous right. Uh, right. caretaker. So he wasn't around in 1927, 21, whatever the date mm-hmm. is either. Uh, you know, he, uh, but he's clearly a part of the, the overlook. And so, yeah, I don't think it was a, mm-hmm. a, a reincarnation type thing or, or anything. I, I honestly just believe that mm-hmm. once he, and I, and I think that also is as they're backing up, you see how many people are in the picture. And I think it's just yeah. to show yeah. all yeah. of these spirits mm-hmm. are uh, now a part of the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the overlook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that that when I first saw it, that was my initial thought. I didn't, I didn't think of the other one until I was reading, you know, doing some of the research and heard those other theories. And I was like, yeah. I mean, I can see where they were trying to piece that together, but it didn't, it didn't land as well with me. So, so the uh, as you mentioned, the scene at the end that uh, Kubrick eventually took out um, takes place right after Jack dies in the snow. <clears throat> Ullman visits Wendy in the hospital. He tells her. Uh, about the things you saw at the hotel, a lieutenant told me they've really gone over the place with a fine-tooth comb. They didn't find the slightest evidence of anything at all out of the ordinary. He also encourages Wendy and Danny to stay with him for a while. The film ends with text over black that says, The Overlook Hotel would survive this tragedy as it had so many others. It is still open each year from May 20th to December 20th. I mean, May 20th to September 20th. It is closed for the winter. And uh, Roger Ebert deemed the cut a good decision. According to him, Kubrick was wise to remove the epilogue. It now, I have one heard also too many that, out uh, from under in the, the story. scene, uh, well, you know, you mentioned not finding anything. I've heard they don't even find Jack. Um, and then I've heard in that scene, right. yes, Ullman, exactly. uh, I don't know if he says anything about, well, you know, did find this or whatnot, but he apparently hands Danny the baseball that mm-hmm. was or the tennis ball that was rolled to him yeah the tennis that, ball that scene yes um, I did which re- quick, I did read that again as well. for people yeah. who want to go back and rewatch it watch that scene when the tennis ball is rolled to danny it is an opening in the pattern when danny then stands up the pattern is closed mm-hmm. 
and again, I'm sure Kubrick did that on purpose. Mm. I re- I really do not think that, that that's a continuity <laughs> error. I think of course I think Kubrick did that on purpose. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. He was too much a perfectionist to leave to leave those kind of things as mm-hmm. unintentional. Um, like you said, kind of goofs or whatever. All right, so we'll talk about critical receptions. So this was not it had mixed reviews when it came out. Um, it's kind of gained um, popularity over the years. Uh, but currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an 85% from critics and a 93% from audiences. On Metacritic, it's got a 66 out of 100 from critics and an 8.4 out of 10 from audiences. So, um, you know, I, I, I kind of put it in about a... I, I, when I, I grade my stuff on IMDb, so I can give the 10 star rating. I, I gave it, I would give it like an eight out of 10. Once again, I think it's, I think it's done really well. It's not my favorite. It's not, Halloween you know, or, yeah. it's not something I'm going to watch every, you know, uh, very often. Yeah. Yeah. It's not one of those. Uh, but I, I respect the filmmaking. Yeah. Um, I respect no. the things that I respect. And, and I, you know, <laughs> the things that you, you know, uh, we're saying, which, so. Again, my mind, as you just mentioned, watching it, and I said Halloween. I do think that's the one thing Kubrick just went a little too cliche on. If you pay attention, mm-hmm. they arrived at the Outlook on October 30th, um, which means that their first day alone oh, okay. in the Overlook is Halloween. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, yeah, that's a little, I think that it was a little Halloween. cliche. Yeah. Good note. Yeah. Um, but uh, on, on the nose. Uh, <laughs> especially especially when you think back to what you just said if the epilogue actually said it's open from may to september then why were there still people there in october when they mm-hmm. didn't take over so which is true to the book so people it's there may to september yeah in the book. exactly um but uh but yeah so gotcha. um yeah i don't know what my thoughts are on that that final thing like i said I've never seen it because you can't see it because Kubrick <laughs> destroyed it. Um, yeah. Right, right. Now, I did, yeah, and I did read that, like, in the European cut, he took out some, he took out some scenes in the European cut. Like, there's not the scene of Danny with the doctor. Um, like, he changed some of that as well, which I thought was interesting. Like, well, I, I do know that almost want to see the European cut if it's cuts, still available. They changed the, uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And it's not just they translate it. Like it's, yeah. it translates yeah. back into completely different phrases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently. Yeah. 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 Oh, no. And I think say. Kubrick had, had a say. There wasn't some anything that happens in a Kubrick movie. That's not chosen by Kubrick. <laughs> no, he, he chose the sayings based off of, you know, the mm-hmm. culture that it was going to, which, uh, you know, going, you're kind of playing Mm -hmm. off of that too as infamous as the here's Johnny um, part is it almost didn't make the movie. Uh, It was, Mm -hmm. it was an ad lib by Jack Nicholson, which some people believe was just because he was so tired Mm -hmm. of doing the scene. He, he got, you know, silly. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, I've heard that Kubrick was initially, upset about it because if you remember me saying Jack's name in the book is John. It's John Torrance. And so Kubrick thought that mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson had messed up and and was supposed to, you know, instead of calling himself Jack, he's calling oh, okay. himself John. 
but then when Jack Nicholson and, and every mm-hmm. – because Stanley Kubrick didn't live in America. Uh, and so he was not familiar with Johnny Carson and the Tonight Show. So right, when they explained right. it to him, uh, luckily he kept it in. And, of course, it becomes one of the most iconic scenes in movie history. So. Right. Right, right. All right, so we talked, so just briefly, what we mentioned, uh, we won't really get into them, but we did, they did the, do the TV miniseries in 1997 on ABC, and then the sequel, Dr. Sleep, which is also based on a book that Stephen King wrote, um, released last year that you saw. I have not seen yes. it yet, but just yeah, real and quick, it's a fan, uh, if you're a fan seeing, of the, if the, you're the, movie, a fan, the Kubrick movie or even Stephen King's original novel, Mike Flanagan is a brilliant modern horror director. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen some of his stuff, he did, he did every episode of the haunting of Hill house on Netflix. He's got another Netflix movie called uh, Gerald's game. Um, he did Oculus, which my wife hates horror movies, but she actually mm-hmm. loves the movie Oculus. Um, he did this movie and he <laughs> did a great job bringing both the novel and uh, both the original novel. And of course the Dr. Sleep novel, as well as the original Kubrick movie, you're, you're thinking he had to take all three of those in order to make this movie. And, you know, I, I won't spoil anything because mm-hmm. that movie is still pretty new. I mean, it just came out last year. Um, but he does a great job of right. paying tribute to all of it and honoring all of it. And I think fans of the movie and the, the novel will appreciate what uh, Mike Flanagan does with Dr. Sleep. Cool. All right. We're going to, we're going to wrap it up there because, you know, all talk and no play makes us very dull boys um, at this late of an hour. (laughs) So, all right. Well, thanks, Laramie. I appreciate you being a part of this podcast. Once again, I promise I'll have you on for something that's not based on the Stephen King novel. So, so we can get your yeah, instead of the comparison, and it won't be based on a book that you've read, so you can talk about other things besides the books that you've read. Oh, I, I do want to make one quick little tie in. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, I All just right. remembered that I learned this uh, while preparing for this Go podcast. For so, not too long after the movie was finished, uh, the studio that it was filmed at actually burned down. Um, you know, which a lot of people find, you know, is yes, I did almost that, yeah. like it was maybe karma, uh, since we talked about in the in the novel, the, the hotel right. burns down. But when the studio was rebuilt, and again, you're talking to this giant studio. Um, when the, the studio was rebuilt, the first movie to be filmed in the new studio, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So ties back into. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Which I think, yeah, that one and another, there, there were two movies that were supposed to be filmed on that lot. But they both got pushed back because the yeah, shoot we didn't went talk way about that. They so planned that this movie took fifty-one weeks to shoot. They they took an entire year to shoot this movie, right? Yeah, which the uh, the iconic scene of the blood pouring out of the elevator was shot three different times, yeah. but also it took them the nine days to reset the shot. So. <laughs> and we're going to leave it right there. So thanks again, Laramie. Always for being pleasure. Part, and uh, we'll have you again next time. Thanks again so much for listening to today's episode. 
If you want to continue the conversation, send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. That's movieviews, M-O-V-I-V-I-E-W-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also share your thoughts by joining the Movie Views group on Facebook, and you can also follow us on Instagram. There you'll find news and reviews about current and upcoming new movie releases, not just the 80s movies we talk about here. Be sure to be on the lookout every other Friday on Facebook and Instagram as well, where we announce the 80s flick we'll be watching for the next episode. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and also hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of our new episodes. And no matter which platform you choose to listen to us on, be sure to check out the show notes to read more fun facts about the movie we just weren't able to fit into this episode. Well, that's all for today. Join us again next time for another 80s flick flashback.